want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start by looking at just a couple verses there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As usual, it's good to see everyone out this evening to be able to worship God together as a family. If you're visiting with us, we appreciate your presence here. You're a delighted guest and we hope that you'll be back with us whenever you get the chance uh, and we'd ask that you just stick around for a few minutes afterward that we might get to know you a little bit better and uh, speak with you. Uh, as I said, if you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, <clears throat> there, is, there is much wisdom in the world and a lot of that wisdom is very foolish. There are lots of people that think they are the wisest person in the world and a lot of those people tend to be very foolish. And, and the reason I start by saying that is because in the Bible there are two different ways or two different sources of wisdom that God says uh, you can, that you can find knowledge, that you can find wisdom. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I like the way that uh, God, through the Apostle Paul, puts it here. He says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. And so here you have, and I know this is in the middle of a kind of a specific context. He's writing to a group in Corinth that, that's struggling with some issues. And they're struggling with some individuals thinking that they're just, they're, they're more wise than the scriptures. They're more wise than, or wiser than the um, apostles who are bringing the words of Christ, bringing the doctrine of Christ to them. And so he has to bring this up and say, hey, make sure that you're not wise in your, wise in your own estimation. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go throughout the lesson tonight. But this is wisdom that the world has to offer. Wisdom that God says is going to be completely quashed. Wisdom that God says he has already defeated. And, and so from the very outset, what we find is that there is wisdom that God provides and there's wisdom that the world provides. And we need to make sure that we're seeking God's wisdom instead of the world's. Because there are so many people that are just so ready to give their wisdom. Uh, and so we need to be searching for God's, own, God's first and foremost and only. And so how do we know the difference between the earthly and heavenly wisdom? And I think in 1 Kings chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and put a bookmark there, 1 Kings chapter 3 I think is a very good story that helps us understand or at least reveals that God's wisdom uh, looks like how it looks in comparison and contrast to the world's and how we attain that wisdom. How do we build ourselves up to God's wisdom? And so... There are just three things that I want to talk about it, it, pertaining to that, and it all comes down to the heart. Isn't that just interesting that, once again, it comes down to a heart issue? And so from the first uh, point, I want to say that it takes a prepared heart. It takes preparation. In 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, 1 Kings chapter 3, <coughs> 1 Kings chapter 3 in verse 3. We'll skip the first two verses because it's just giving us some information about Solomon and some marriages. But in verse 3 it says, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high, high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. And so we'll stop there for just a moment. But just in those first few verses there, verses 3 through 5, we, we see an interesting story and a story that most of us know. 
This is the moment where Solomon asks for wisdom and the moment that God gives Solomon that wisdom. And, and from this point on, he's going to be considered the, the wisest man to ever live besides uh, Jesus, God, God in, in the flesh, of course. But he's going to be considered the, the, the most prosperous king, the wisest king, the wisest man who ever lives on this earth. And it's all because of what God blesses him with. Now, what I want to start with from the beginning is that I don't think that this is just for no reason. Solomon is not just asked this question by God, what do you want? What, what would you like for me to do with you? Incidentally, I will just say, the question is not, I'll give you whatever you want. The question is, what do you want? Um, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we go on. But I do think it's interesting that this is not just you know, something that God is asking Solomon because, well, you are the son of David. No, I think Solomon has done a few things. And we already read in verses 3 through 4, he has done some things that has showed his, his, his love for God. And really, that's the first thing I want to focus on, is that if, if we're talking about a prepared heart, how do we prepare our hearts to receive the wisdom of God? I think it takes a genuine love for him. A genuine love and, and a genuine fear, as we see in Proverbs chapter 1, and verse 7. But in verse 3, at the beginning of verse 3, I love how it says Solomon loved the Lord. And one of the things that it does is it connects that love that he has for God with what he had been doing for him. This was a love that was proven. Now, when, when you look at the things that Solomon was doing up to this point and, and even currently in this passage, was this just a verbal kind of thing where he said, oh, well, of course I love God. It's, it's just a mere profession. Or is it something a little bit more than that? You know, at some point, you can tell your spouse you love them, you know, up and down every single day. But at some point, if you don't show it, what happens? It, it kind of breeds bitterness. It kind of breeds a little bit of, maybe not even bitterness, but just some neutral ground where there's really just no love, just kind of a, I'll, I'll agree to deal with you if you agree with deal with me. And there, there's a need for real, active love. And Solomon, I think, proves it. It's not just something where he's just saying that he loves God. Solomon had proven his love for God by walking in the right manner. What does it say right after the fact that he loved God in verse 3, that he loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David? And now at the very end of verse 3, there is something interesting there. It talks about how there are high places. And I think the reason that that's there is because the high places tend to be a, a, like a major point of temptation for the people of Israel from the very beginning when they enter into the promised land. These are things that should have been taken down long ago, and, and yet they're still there. And so I think that's what the writer is really trying to suggest is that you know, this is still something that is a problem in Israel, and it's going to continue to be a problem. But regardless of that, what we find is that Solomon has not gotten to the point where he's using these high places to be like the other nations. In fact, he is trying to give a great devotion or a great devoted offering to the Lord. And, and, and so, again, I think that this is a true, genuine love that he has from that he is proving to God. And isn't this exactly what Christ says is going to follow if we love him? Right? If we love God, then we are going to do what? We're going to do his commandments. We're going to keep his commandments. Over in John chapter 14, John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Skipping down to verse 21, we don't have enough time to read the whole passage. But in verse 21, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And we go to 1 John chapter 5 and the first few verses there, it talks even more about that. How God is love and how, how, how do we know that we are his sons if we love him. And so, but, but all of that being said, 
it's interesting that that doesn't change from the Old Testament. It doesn't just, you know, this is the old law. This is how maybe the people under the law of Moses had to try and find some kind of favor. It's the same thing we have to do today. You love him, you're going to do what he says. What does that suggest about the person who just decides they're not going to do what he says? That person does not get to say, oh, I love God. You can say it till you're blue in the face. It's not true. Not unless you're willing to do what he tells you to do. And I think that's what we see with Solomon. That he is preparing his heart for wisdom because he's been taking the time to cultivate this love. This genuine love for God. Because he's doing as he says. And not only that, but he is devoted in what he is doing. Back in verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 3. After, again, it says that he loved God and was walking in the statutes of his father David who walked in the statutes of the Lord. It says, the king went on to Gibeon to sacrifice there for there was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. This is not just, just <laughs> Solomon wasn't trying to get away with the bare minimum here. I think that's pretty obvious. A thousand burnt offerings. Do you know how much time that takes? If you want to think about how much time that would take, and how much energy that, that would, you'd have to expend to do something like that, go to Leviticus. In the first few chapters there, Leviticus chapters 1 through 6, look at how much they had to think about each of these offerings. And here, Solomon is giving a thousand burnt offerings. And so again, this isn't just him trying to get away with the bare minimum like Israel tended to do from, for a lot of their history, just trying to you know, barely scathe by and, and say that, hey, God, we love you. And what does God say? No, no, you don't. Solomon really was giving him a lavish offering, giving him a lavish sacrifice. And, and so he's trying to do more than just a tiny little bit to get by. He's trying to prove to God. He's trying to show God how much he loves him. Dedication, I think, is a defining factor or a defining condition of love. And Solomon showed God his love through even something like ceremony and ritual and worship here. Now, the reason I say that is because I think a lot of times, I think it's important we see this in the text here, because a lot of times people tend to say the world really would look at this and the religious, the religious world at large would say something like, oh, you know, God doesn't care about the ceremony. He only cares about if you love him or not. He doesn't care about this ceremony, only that you have some kind of love for him. Oh, really? I, we could go through passage after passage of how God says, well, of course I want you to love me, but I also care about some of these other things. It's kind of like what we're talking about in the Bible class. God does not say, I want you to think about the weightier matters of the law, but forget the rest. He says, you should be thinking about all of it. You sh and, and really the rebuke there is you're focusing on the, the more minute parts of the law. But he's not saying forget those things. He's saying, I want you to do every single bit of it if you really love me. And so <clears throat> I, I think it's interesting that a lot of times when, it when, when, when the religious world comes and starts talking about love that we have for God, you know, when you talk about our worship services and you talk about the, the, the constant preaching and teaching about obedience to God and how that's necessary and how that's intrinsically connected to grace and God's grace. A lot of times people might say something like, well, do you really think that God finds love in your worship service? Do you really think that God finds love in your strict adherence to his commandments? Do you really think that God really cares about all of these things? Well, I'm not saying that this is the only way to show God our love, but it is a pretty good indicator because what do we start with in John chapter 14? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so, yes, it's not just the ceremony that matters, but our love, our love should extend to everything else. But, but yes, 
the ceremony does matter, and the ritual does tend to matter. Over in Psalm 37, <clears throat> Psalm 37 in verse 4, this is another interesting passage because it's one that a lot of the religious world likes to use from time to time to, especially for like the, the health and wealth kind of gospel, but it says in Psalm 37 in verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And so you can just kind of imagine where people might go with that. Well, Listen, he'll give you all the things that you want, all the things that you could possibly find comfortable if you just do one thing, if you just do this or you send us money. Well, that's obviously that's not what God is saying. I do think, however, that he will give you the delights of your heart if you make him your prime delight. I think that's really what the psalmist is trying to indicate. And isn't this kind of what we see uh, all throughout the Bible, that God wants us to make him that, that prime source of joy? or the primary source of joy. That out of all of the blessings, out of all of the comforts, out of all of the things in this world, the relationships that we can have, he says, I wish and I want for me to be the, the one thing that you can't live without. The one thing that, that you get your most delight from. I, and the reason I bring this up is because when, when people say something like, you know, I love worshiping to God, you know, ceremony. I love praying to God and spending time with Him in that. I love studying God's Word. Again, all ceremony. Do you think that just because it's ceremony that, that God would not be pleased with someone who says something like that? Of course He'd be pleased. Why? Because this person truly loves Him. Because they're trying to incorporate everything about Him into their lives. And so I, I just, I think that it's, I think that it's kind of silly when people start talking about ceremony and ritual being something that really is unloving or has nothing to do with love. I think it has everything to do with love. If we truly love God, we're going to do what he says. If we truly love God, we're going to want to do these things more. And so I think that that's important to, to uh, make clear as we continue on before we get to that uh, portion of the passage in 1 Kings chapter 3 where Solomon asks for wisdom. And back over in 1 Kings chapter 3, <clears throat> Solomon had spent time preparing his heart before God had come in verse 5 and asked him, what is it that you want? And so coming back to 1 Kings chapter 3, we get to this uh, moment where he finally makes this request. Beginning in verse 6, Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now, this is... Uh, you know, I know that this is one of the most common passages, one of the most common stories that we know uh, throughout the Bible, especially as you grow up going through, you know, young age Bible, Bible classes. But I got to say, this is one of my favorites, especially because when you, when you really study into what Solomon is asking for here, he is asking for an understanding heart, as the New American Standard puts it. And in fact, if you look at the footnote in the New American Standard translation, it says that it's literally what Sol Solomon's asking for is not just an understanding heart, but it's a heart that is a hearing one. That's really what he's asking for, that you give me a hearing heart. I think that's very interesting. In fact, the, the Hebrew word there, I don't know if I'm saying it right, 
it's, I think it's Shema, but when you look at the definition, it means to hear intelligently. Now, isn't that interesting that you can hear intelligently and you can also not hear intelligently? What does that suggest to you? So he said, hear intelligently, often with implication of attention, often with implication of obedience. And, and I was thinking about putting the entire definition, everything that they had about this word, because what, one word that pops out over and over again is, is obedience or action. And again, I know that maybe we might hear those words and think, Another lesson about obedience. Well, the reason is because God never seems to stop talking about it. It never seems to, to, to be, you know, just out of, of place throughout the scriptures. In fact, this word seems to be inextricably linked to obedience and or action. Even from the very beginning, over in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, in verse 8, after Adam and Eve have committed the first sin in, in creation... <clears throat> It says that the eyes of both of them were open in verse 7, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. In verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, I understand that this is not a very good picture. <laughs> That here is a moment where these, these individuals have to flee because of their disobedience. But the way the word is used, when he says, I heard you in the garden, was that something that they heard and just disregarded? No, when they heard the Lord coming, they acted and quick. And so when this word is used, it, it speaks a lot of action. In fact, you go down just a little bit further in verse 17. <clears throat> as God is going through these curses for the sin that has been committed, as he's speaking to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And so that word, listen, it's the same word that we find in 1 Kings chapter 3. Once more, and again, I think this just incorporates what we've been talking about. What he's saying is, Instead of listening, hearing me, you heard the voice of your wife. And you obeyed another source other than me. And we go to several other passages, but in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18, as you see this moment where Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son, his only begotten son, as God would say, or the, the, the Holy Spirit would say throughout the scriptures, it says, because you have obeyed my voice in this, I'm going to bless you. And that's the reward that, that God says he's going to give to Abraham because he was willing to act on that, that very hard moment of faith. But, but all this just to say, once more the word is used because Abraham acted on what God said. And so there is a lot of obedience and action incorporated within this word. And so it's designed, when you think about the word that we've been given, the scriptures, the Bible, the word is designed to move us to action. So if there is no action, what does that say about our wisdom? What does that say about our hearing? If there is no action, or maybe there is action, but it's the wrong action, mistaken action, what does that say about how we've been hearing? We've, we've either, either not been hearing scripturally, or we've just not been listening to God altogether. We have not listened fully, or we've just completely listened to another source. And so we need to think about that 
As we think about what it means to have a hearing heart, an understanding heart, it's one that is willing and one that is eager to listen to this word alone and over and above all others. And so if that's godly wisdom, having a hearing heart, worldly wisdom then is a non-hearing, a non-understanding heart. If you want to turn over to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Look at what the proverb says here. Proverbs chapter 3, in verse 5 beginning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And so just just from the very beginning as we go through just a few proverbs here, a few uh, portions of godly wisdom, you start with that notion of, the, again, there's two different sources of wisdom that you can take. You have God's or you have the world's. And that means it could come from me or it could come from someone else. But ultimately, it's another source that's not God. And what he says is, if you take another source, really what you're doing is leaning on your own wisdom. You're wise in your own eyes. Over in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Don't you know that most fools don't realize that they're fools? Most fools think, I'm the smartest guy in the room. (laughs) Most fools think, I'm the only one who knows the best decision to make here. (laughs) And what's funny about that is, every single one of us has met someone like that. Probably at work. Probably in the mirror. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That was to see if y'all were paying attention. (laughs) But we do meet those people from time to time. The people that just say, I know best. And they're not, they don't know best because they've come to this council. They know best because it's my opinion or my judgment. And that's all that matters. Now, clearly, clearly God's wisdom, not just in the Proverbs, but all throughout the Bible, make just makes so certain that the people who do not come to him for their opinions and their judgments, those are the biggest fools of all. And so in verse 15 of of Proverbs chapter 4, or or Proverbs chapter 12, at the very end of that, he says, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. I think that there's definitely something to be said, and I think we've even said this in a a lesson not too long ago, about the need to listen to counsel, uh, especially when it comes from, you know, brethren when it comes from a trusted Bible student but what I want to focus on here is specifically the counsel of the Lord because if we're not leaning on that counsel what it means is we are leaning on our own understanding and our own understanding it's rash it's reactionary it's 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 leaning on emotional whims and that's just not gonna cut it it is always clearly worldly wisdom when it contrasts with, with scriptural wisdom. Over in 1 Corinthians again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's very interesting that the first three chapters there, Paul brings wisdom up quite a few times. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Look at the contrast between the world's wisdom and God's. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
Now, you know, the words foolishness and wisdom are used a couple of times and in different, in, for, for different people. Because, you know, you, you see that and you see the wisdom of the world, the foolishness of God. God's not foolish. That's the point. And yet, what people say is foolishness. Yet, what people say is just, just a- absolute folly, absolute nonsense. It's that very message that God says, this is what's going to destroy the wisdom of the world. And one of the things I think we need to take from this is not just that. It is very it is of course that if, if we come across some form of knowledge, some form of eloquence, some form of of, of you know thought processes that that seem very scholarly, academic, that seem very wise in the moment, but it does not come from God. We need to have serious caution there and make sure that it aligns with God at the very least. But 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 also. A little bit further, we should be encouraged by what Paul says here. Because it is so foolish. We know what the world is going to say. We know what the world is going to do. They have always, and they will continue to be predictable. And that is to say that they are never going to put down the fact that the cross is stupid. And that God is stupid. That it, You have to be a bunch of, this is actually one of the things that Richard Dawkins said a long time ago. That it's just, it's, it's something for unsophisticates. It's something for people that are just not that bright. That are just not that smart. How can you think that someone's going to send their, their beloved son for, for a bunch of terrible people? And that's how they're going to word it. And what's encouraging about what Paul says here is you can know beforehand that that's what they're going to do. It's always been their tactic, and they're not going to let it go. And yet, even with everything that they may say, with all the eloquent and smart words that they have, what God says is you take a look at this wisdom, it will beat those scholars any day, and it will run circles around them. And so I think we should take encouragement from that as we think about how the world tends to act like, well, 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 if, if you don't go with us, well, that just means that, just means that you, have, you have no, you know, you're not right at all. You're not smart at all. We need to be careful that we don't get discouraged with that kind of mindset. But finally, with this point, with all this being said, how confident should we be when, when we side with man's plans? How confident and assured should we be when we side with either my own understanding or some other man's understanding instead of God's? Whenever I think about this kind of thought, I always come back to Psalm 2, where you have, oh, all the nations, the most powerful nations. They come together, they band together, and they're going to try to fight against God. And what, what do you hear but laughter from the throne of God? Why? Because it's, it doesn't mean anything. You can have the most formidable army of the world, of all of history, come up against God, and they're not going to be able to stand. It's, it's laughable. And so when we side with Man's wisdom, understand it's just as laughable. In Proverbs 19, Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 20. Proverbs 19 and verse 20. I should have probably told you to put a bookmark in Proverbs because we were going to be reading through a few. But Proverbs 19, beginning in verse 20, it says, Listen, it's the same word here, counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Many plans are in a man's heart. But the counsel of the Lord will stand. And it just comes back to what we were talking about in Psalm 2. It doesn't matter what man comes up with, what we conjure up. Especially when it's trying to go against God's plan or God's will. It just simply does not matter. You can get all the counsel in the world, but if it goes against God's counsel, it's not going to stand. 
And it reminds me of the story of Ahithophel. You remember that? that he, he, was, he was bitter against David because of what he had done to Bathsheba and, and what he had done to Uriah, his family. And so he tries to use his wisdom. And he was, his counsel was considered like God's in those days. But even the wisest man, the man that everyone considered in such, a high, in such high esteem and a high regard, what, how does that story end? He kills himself. Because you can't stand against the wisdom of God. And the only thing that, that lingers, the only conclusion that remains for those that try to stand against his counsel is an inevitable destruction and defeat. Just as disheartening and just as discouraging as Ahithophel's. And maybe there's something to learn there. God's way is always better. Coming back to Genesis chapter 3 that we were talking about a moment ago with Adam and Eve. Where did God's wisdom place Adam and Eve in the beginning? In the garden. God's wisdom placed man in a very close relationship with him. In such a degree of fellowship that they could hear God walking in the garden with them. That's where God's wisdom placed them. Where did their wisdom place them? Completely separated. Why? Because they decided that they were going to take their authority, they were going to establish their own authority and forget God's. Just think about where God's wisdom always will place us. It always brings us closer to him. It always brings us in, in a closer fellowship and relationship with him. Man's always brings us further away. Too often Christians, I think, think that it's a small thing to come to a different conclusion. Or maybe we like to use the word judgment than what they find in the Bible. Than what they find in God's wisdom. And I do think the word that we often use is judgment or opinion. How do people do this today? I think one way is parenting. That's something Paige and I have had to think about a lot, especially in this past year. But there are a lot of Christians that will say a whole bunch of things, and sometimes, unfortunately, a lot more often than you might think, they're coming to conclusions that God does not come to, particularly when it comes to disciplining. That's a scary thing. It's a scary concept. Speaking of discipline, what about church discipline? I think this is another way that we tend to do this. Oh, I would never go against God's wisdom. And yet, when God says that we need to separate from someone, when God says that you need to treat this person as, as how they are acting, separated from God, walking in darkness, and you can't have fellowship with darkness, and yet all of those things being considered, all those things being said by the wisdom of God, and some, some people, well, I, I don't know, I think, maybe I've, I think maybe I've found something different. Maybe I've found something new. I think that maybe you just haven't considered this because, uh, you know, nobody's been able to come up with this before. No one's been able to think about this before. That's terrifying. Another way people do this, I think, is when, especially when it comes to establishing authority. And, and more and more Christians are doing this. Instead of just taking the simple words of God, we're going to try to change a few things because maybe I just don't like what he said in a few areas. Maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's not as direct as that. Maybe it's just, I just want to make things a little bit easier. And sometimes when we, when we talk about all those different examples, sometimes people might just say, well, nothing bad's going to happen. Maybe they even go through with it and they say, nothing bad did happen. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't do the, the discipline of, of brethren the way I thought I should. And guess what? You know, because it tends to be with family. But regardless, now, you know, things seem to be a little bit better. You know, the earth didn't swallow me up. The earth didn't swallow me whole. I always think it's funny that when people talk about these kinds of things, they always use those extreme examples. Hey, look, I wasn't just struck by lightning on the spot. Why would you even say that if you're not tempting fate already? Regardless, that's a side point. 
But people say, you know, nothing bad happened. Don't be so sure. You say that because, yeah, you're still breathing. But think about it like this. You have disobeyed God yourself. Forget whoever else we may be interacting with. What about you? Over in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 9. Look at this. Proverbs 28 and verse 9. He who turns away his ear from listening, hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. He could be a holy person. It could be a holy man. Holy as David. And yet you turn away from the law. What does God say about your prayer? It's like an abomination. It's disgusting. That's what happens when we disobey God. That's what happens when we decide... I'm going to lean on my own wisdom. We need to be so careful that we don't consider that a small thing. And, you know, even just going beyond yourself, you've disobeyed God if you go against his wisdom. But you might have done way more damage than you can possibly imagine with others because of your example. And unfortunately, more often than not, we do tend to do that from time to time without even realizing it. And so you want understanding. You want wisdom. Wisdom like Solomon. You must listen. You must hear God's counsel over all others. And so finally, as we think about that and close our thoughts this evening, it takes preparation, it takes an understanding heart to have that kind of wisdom, and it takes a consistent heart. Finishing off the text here, or the passage here, back over in 1 Kings chapter 3, picking up in verse 10, it says that this answer that Solomon gave to God, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you, uh, like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days." If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So not only does God give Solomon what he asks for, but he gives him even more. And why? Because God likes to reward those who, who are not just trying to score brownie points, but they're trying to do what pleases the Lord. I like that. And I would like to think that if I was asked the same question by the Lord, that I would give a very similar answer. At least I hope that I'm preparing <laughs> to give a similar answer. That whenever we're faced with some kind of question, some kind of test, that I can answer assuredly in a way that will please the Lord. Note that this offer to Solomon was under, though, the same conditions God gave to David, that God gave to all who are supposed to be followers of his law, that you need to walk after my statutes, you need to walk after my commandments. There is a need for a perpetual devotion, for perpetual obedience, a perpetual never-ending love to God. That doesn't just go away once we attain that wisdom. That doesn't just go away once we attain salvation. That doesn't just go away once we become, once we become, uh, have a fellowship with him, a relationship with him. In fact, you turn uh, in verse 15, the very next verse, it says, Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and did what? He stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. What does he do when he wakes up and sees that God had done what he said? don't have to do this anymore. I've worked hard to get to this point. I've, he gave me what I wanted. It's not what he does. 
Now that God has granted him that wisdom, now that God has said he's going to do even more for him, Solomon goes and gives even more. Peace offerings, grain offerings. He'd already given a thousand burnt offerings. Solomon says it's not enough. It must be more. And again, it's not because he's trying to score brownie points here. It's because he focused on that love. And he wanted to cultivate it further. Now, here's the thing though. It was when he forgot this love or was distracted from his love for God that he acted unwisely. That he began to act just like the rest of the, fool, of the foolish nations. We, there's a, a very strong need to maintain godly wisdom. Because just because we have godly wisdom, that doesn't guarantee us from folly or from sin. That doesn't guarantee us from failing. You look at the example of, of Solomon here. Uh, in first, I think it's 1 Kings chapter 11. That's the moment where we see that he sinned. And because of this specific sin, the kingdom is divided. And after his son, or during the reign of his son Rehoboam, it's already going to be divided. And, and all of that because what? He forgot his primary love in God and started divvying it up. Started letting it be distracted for his wives, all of his many wives and concubines. I understand how can the wisest man, you know, bring in so many women to try, you know, for wives and concubines. I, I don't understand it. I, I, I couldn't say. I think this is though the point where he wasn't maintaining that godly wisdom. He may have been thinking from from a purely carnal standpoint. This is very politically wise, but is it spiritually wise? And again, it's when he forgets the love. For God, first and foremost, that's when the mistakes start happening. That's when the failures with dire and grave consequences start arising. If you want to turn over to Nehemiah chapter 13 very quickly. Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 25 beginning. This is after, way after the kingdom was divided. After even the people of Israel, they're putting to captivity from Babylon. They return from captivity. And Nehemiah is among these people who's, who's returning and trying to reestablish the worship, rebuild the temple reinstitute the law, God's law. And what does Nehemiah say to these people who have made the same mistake as Solomon? In verse 25, I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him and he was loved by his God. Note that. That he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? God's, you know, sometimes people come to passages like this and say, oh God, God's a racist. No, if you're paying any attention, <laughs> if you would stop focusing on the wisdom of the world and focus on the wisdom of God, you would see from the context... God's not a racist. What God is saying is people are giving themselves to evil companionship. And guess what happens when you do that? Well, now you have fellowship with it. And now you become like that. And what Nehemiah says is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, could not deal with this kind of temptation. What makes you think that you're going to do a better job? You can't. If Solomon couldn't do it, no one could. And, and I bring that up just to say, 
just like Solomon, just like the people there in, in Nehemiah's age, the need never dies. We have to continue to maintain this godly wisdom. And you know how we maintain it? You come back to it every day. You come back to this perfect law of liberty and you never stop looking at it. Because as soon as we do, that's when we start leaning on our own understanding. That's when we start taking the ideas, the notions of the world, taking the ideas and notions of, of, of Satan, the things that he would have us believe, and we get further and further and further away from God. I would just hearken you back to this thought. Remember where God's wisdom placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful relationship with him. And when they followed man's wisdom, damnation, destruction, separation, the same lesson stands before us today. Maybe you're a Christian, you've fallen away from biblical scriptural wisdom, and you've started taking outside thoughts, maybe like the Galatians that Paul had to rebuke and say, you need to come back to this one true gospel. Maybe that's, maybe that's you tonight. You can make your life right. Abandon those things, just like you were supposed to have done previously when you became a Christian, and start following solely this one guide. And you can have a restored relationship with him. But if you're not a Christian, just understand you don't get to bring any of that knowledge, any of that wisdom into this kingdom. It is only this king, Jesus the Christ, that gets to say what's right and what is wrong. It is only him that gets to say, this is how far you go. This is where I want you to go. This is what I want you to say. No other man, no other source. Are you willing to listen to only him? Are you willing to make him your king? Ask him to give you an understanding heart, a hearing heart. Are you willing to hear? And therefore, obey everything that he says. Get rid of all the things. Repent from the things he says you can't be a part of anymore. Make a confession based on your belief. Be faithful in the things that he says you need to be adamant in. And be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life. To live a resurrected life. You can have salvation this very evening. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.